1: Hello, and welcome to the Battleground Ukraine podcast with me, Patrick Bishop, and Saul David. There was this week no better indication of the weakened state of Russia's armed forces after months of futile fighting in Bakhmut, Volodar, and elsewhere than the scaled back Victory Day parade in Moscow that featured just a single tank, a World War II vintage T 34. There were in total just 51 vehicles on display including 10 armoured vehicles used by Chechen forces. In 2021, by contrast, there were 197 vehicles, which made an appearance, including many of Russia's latest tanks.
2: Yes, and on top of that, the fly pass was cancelled for the second year running, and the marching troops were mainly cadets and students. Now, Putin tried to gloss over the humiliation of putting on such a threadbare military parade, for reasons we imagine of both security and a lack of available kit, by launching one of his trademark rants against the West, accusing it of provoking conflict, sowing hatred and destroying family values, instead of, we presume, just the families themselves. Now, just hours after unleashing another barrage of cruise missiles against Kiev and other Ukrainian cities, he raged that the West had forgotten, and I quote, who defeated the Nazis, and instead had created a new cult of Nazism through the destruction of Soviet
1: memorials. But even as uh, Putin was speaking, his turbulent ally, or perhaps nemesis, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the boss of uh, Wagner PMC, the mercenary outfit, had the temerity to issue his own video address via Telegram. Russia, he said, did not deserve to celebrate any recent victories, only historic ones and even the small amount of military hardware on display in Moscow was for him a provocation. We have everything there on TV, he said, in an expletive-laden rant. But the Ukrainian offensive will be on the ground. Happy Victory Day to our grandfathers, and how we celebrate is a big question. You just need to remember about them and not effing about on Red Square.
2: And he went on to complain that his men had only received 10% of the munitions they had been promised and would only be able to fight in Bakhmut for a couple more days. Prigozhin added Today, one of the units of the Ministry of Defense fled from the flanks, abandoning their positions and exposing a front of almost two kilometers wide. If Wagner leaves their positions, then the Ukrainians will come to Rostov. Now, Rostov, of course, is a town that's in Russia. So, Patrick, what's going on here? I mean, is this more of the same from Prigozhin?
1: I think so. It's quite intriguing, isn't it, though, because a, there is a new development here. A couple of days ago, Prigozhin and Ramzam Kadyrov, uh, the head of the Chechen Republic, announced that Chechen troops would soon replace Wagner forces in Backwood. Now, remember, the Chechens have been sort of in and out of this conflict. Kadyrov has been fairly quiet in recent months, but he's now sort of making a bit of a comeback. And uh, Prigozhin added that he was confident that the Chechens would recapture the remaining Two and a half square kilometers of Bakhmut that's under Ukrainian control still, and Kadyrov agreed with this prediction, saying his men would do the job in a matter of hours. That's typical the sort of bluster we expect from him. But clearly, this announcement was designed to embarrass um, Shoigu and the, and the regular Russian forces. And you know, it's a further indication that Prigozhin doesn't think much of the of the Russian military command. But also, you know, looking a bit deeper, I think it might. Be an attempt to shift blame for the failure in backward uh, away from Wagner and onto the Russian conventional military. Is that is that how you see it, so Yeah,
2: I think so. I mean, he's hedging his bets really here, isn't he? Uh, I mean, after all, if the Chechens fail. Kadyrov can claim that they were also under-resourced, which is, of course, the claim that Prigozhin's made. But more than that, I think, Prigozhin's announcement is also a warning that Russia faces disaster on the battlefield in relation to the coming Ukrainian counter-offensive if it doesn't get its act together. Now, saying this is quite clever because Prigozhin, in my view, can't really lose out. If the Russians hold the Ukrainians to relatively small gains in the coming counter-offensive, he'll take some of the credit. And if they don't, it'll be a case of, I told you so. So I think he's thinking like this. He's calculating that as generals like Shoigu and Gerasimov are inevitably sacked if there are disasters, he, Kadyrov, and their acolytes will become even more indispensable for Putin. What is striking, I think, and has been for some time, is that Putin allows all this to happen. So the question, Patrick, is why is that?
1: Well, it depends really on how how much faith you have in Putin's control of events. You might say, as people have done frequently, this is a case of divide and rule. You know, his strategy is to remain above the fray, let the underlings fight it out. But, you know, something else might be at play here. Does Putin recognize that uh, perhaps that the only reliable fighters he's got left are Wagner and the Chechens, which is really an indication of weakness, isn't it? And if that's the case, he can't afford to alienate their leaders there is a big risk here though isn't there that they become a sort of praetorian guard you know i'm thinking back to sort of roman parallels who are although they're meant to be kind of allied to the ruler they end up actually intriguing against him and overthrowing him and installing their own man it's just a thought I don't know how much time putin spends on his roman history but uh, yeah i mean an interesting development uh, there's another been another assassination attempt um just to move on a bit on another prominent Russian nationalist, this time a man called Zakhar Prilepin, who's a co-leader of the state Duma Party known as A Just Russia. He was badly injured by a car bomb, which also killed his driver. Uh, now, Moscow's blaming, as you might expect, Ukrainian secret service. And um, you know, there's a Prigozhin element to this story as well, because he's said to have fostered ties with Prilepin's party, and so it might be uh, that this is a sort of indirect uh, attack at at the Wagner boss. And there's been a few of these. Remember Maxim Fomin, aka Vladimir Tatarsky, an ultra, another ultra nationalist, a mill blogger, who was killed in a bombing in St. Petersburg at a cafe back in April. And you know, he was a big pal of Prigozhin. And Prigozhin hinted that the attack might have been aimed at him. But My thought there is that I think that uh, if the FSB was going to kill Prigozhin, they would have found a more efficient and ambiguous way of doing it.
2: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's almost like they're sending a signal. I mean, possibly, Patrick, I mean, let, with this pure speculation here. Of course, it could have been the Ukrainians, but it might also have been an inside job done by the FSB, for example, to uh, send a signal to Prigozhin. But, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? Prigozhin as we're speculating could be a problem for Putin in the long run uh because his forces have had relative success. Let's not go overboard here. I mean they've managed to take a few block in back moves. Uh they're fighting steadily and they're taking enormous casualties, but he could be a problem for Putin in the future. There's there's no question about that. And one of the ways he might be is by building up a, a political power base with a group like Just Russia. So Prigozhin's attempted assassination could be all part of that process. Okay, now the other interesting news this week, uh, and potentially quite alarming for the Ukrainians, is a CNN report that Russian electronic warfare jamming has limited the effectiveness of Ukrainian HIMARS strikes in recent months. And if it's true, and it seems to be pretty well sourced, there are five separate sources coming out, some American, some Ukrainian, this might explain why the counteroffensive has been so long delayed as US And Ukrainian forces have had to find ways to counter evolving Russian EW, that is, uh, electronic warfare jamming efforts. The delay, of course, might, of course, be for the other obvious reason, and that is that Ukrainian commanders are waiting for the battlefield to dry out before they launch their 12 all-arms brigades. But the attack is coming, uh, and it's coming soon. Ukrainian Deputy Defense Minister Volodymyr Havrilov said on May 8th, that the timing and location is not significant because Russian forces and leadership will panic regardless, but that he would not be surprised if something occurred in May or June. So we're early to mid-May now. It could be another few weeks, but it could be any time in
1: the next couple. Yeah, lots lots of hints, you know, which could be psychological warfare on the Ukrainian side that it's coming soon and it will be decisive. Well, um, you know, watch this space. Well, you mentioned at the top, uh, saw those new missile and drone strikes. Well, it seems that most of the incoming missiles were shot down by the improved uh, Ukrainian air defenses, including towards the end of last week, a a Russian hypersonic missile, which was taken down by a US-supplied Patriot battery. Uh, These missiles, the hypersonic ones, I mean, the Russian ones, uh, were supposed to be impossible to intercept. This was the Russian claim. But like so many of their claims, uh, it seems to be hyperbole, hypersonic hyperbole. Uh, So this claim didn't really hold up either. Of course, the odd missile is getting through. uh, That's inevitable. And one did in Odessa, uh, where it destroyed hundreds of tons of humanitarian aid in a Red Cross warehouse and killed a civilian security guard. OK, well, on that unhappy note, we'll take a break. Do join us in part two. When we'll be answering listeners' questions.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. i to to get 30 30, I bet you get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15. Just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: Forty five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promot rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at Mintmobile.com
0: Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear
2: All right. Welcome back to the Friday episode of the Battleground Ukraine podcast. We have, as ever, a rich selection of listeners' questions. And the first is from Nick, who's in northern Italy. Um, He starts off by saying, my wife and I are avid listeners to your really excellent podcast. Keep up the good work. But he goes on to talk about semiconductors. And it's a fascinating question. Um, He says that the suggestion is in uh, Western press reporting that there's been a huge increase in the importation into Russia, of course, of items like high-end washing machines so that they can be stripped of their chips and those chips can then be used in smart munitions. He goes on to say this is a fallacy for two reasons. And I should point out that Nick's got a long history in semiconductor work. In fact, he tells us that he's been in the business for 36 years. So he should be in a position to know. And basically, in a a nutshell, he's saying that in terms of how robust these basic item semiconductors are, they would never really be effective if you try and adapt them for weapons. He says specifically, even if the washing machine's microprocessor could be repurposed to work in a missile or guided shell, it would come in a commercial plastic package that even under modest G-forces could cause the internal wiring to tear itself away from the chip. Any electronic system fired out of a barrel requires sophisticated packaging. These packages are normally high-spec, hybrid ceramic metal and are very expensive. That is the ones that are normally used in munitions. In other words, this is a bit of false reporting. Um, His question uh, after, (laughs) as he puts it, a long-winded preface is, how effective do you think the current sanctions regimes imposed by the West on Russia really is? And what more can be done to close the door completely to technology imports, such as semiconductors, which would stop Russia's ability to manufacture smart munitions.
1: Well, you know, this is a fascinating area, isn't it? We haven't really addressed sanctions uh, much over the last few episodes, so I'll attempt to do that now. Uh, we've also got a question from David from St Albans and from Left uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bruce Mayer of the Canadian Armed Forces. He's retired on this sort of area. So, Let me try and sort of answer the question broadly first on on just how how effective has the uh, Western sanctions regime been. Well, the bad news is that Russia's actually managed to weather the sanctions storm pretty successfully. Uh, There's some IMF figures recently which says that the uh, Russian economy is likely to grow by 0.7% in the coming year, which actually puts it in a better place than Britain and Germany and on a par with France Sanctions appear to have had little impact on the ordinary Russians' standard of living. Food and consumer goods are in reasonably good supply. So that obviously reduces the potential for war-related unrest. Also, the sanctions that were aimed at the very rich men in Putin's circle also failed to um, have much impact. Yes, they've had their yachts impounded. They can't travel abroad so freely, but they've still got plenty of loot stashed away and what it means in effect is that they now have to go to Dubai and Antalya in uh, Turkey for their holidays rather than to Miami or the Riviera now the reason for this is that they, you know there are big holes in the in the sanctions system and um, plenty of third world countries are around who are willing to help Russia evade sanctions places like Serbia and Kazakhstan and of course China's doing its Bit as well, for example, you know, big air, big important areas. For example, the decision to close down the Swift uh, international money transfer system to most Russian banks. I mean, that uh, would have made importing and exporting very difficult, and the results could have been catastrophic for the economy. However, the Chinese have have stepped in, and they've imposed no restrictions, and consequently, much of that business is now being done. Through their equivalent, the Chinese equivalent of SWIFT, which is called C I P S, and uh, using the yuan as, as the currency. So, to cut a long story short, all this makes it likely that if the war continues at its present level of intensity, then the Russian economy can jog on quite successfully. However, that is not the case if Putin seeks to intensify the conflict. And his main problems here, and of course they're very significant ones, are Manpower and weapons. He's got enough to keep things ticking along at the present rate, but if he seeks to escalate, things could rapidly go pear shaped. Uh, And on the weaponry front, obviously, there's still a lot of weaponry and ammo in store, but it's old kit, out of date, and in poor shape. And what they need to improve their battlefield situation is modern stuff. And as, as Nick very eloquently points out, Russia is running out of the microchips needed for this high-tech weaponry. Outside sources can't supply it, and uh, cannibalizing washing machines, etc., can go so far, but it's not really going to do the job. And all the uh, available dual-use stuff is already being plundered. Uh, For example, earlier this year, there was a temporary ban on Russians applying for biometric passports because they were told that the microchips involved uh, were no longer available. It seems they were being diverted to military use. And intriguingly, on the manpower front, Russia can't really produce more soldiers without possibly collapsing the economy. We already know the political risks of calling a mass mobilization. But there are also big consequences for the economy. There are huge labor shortages currently, thanks to the mass flight of young males and the demands of the military. So there are now two and a half vacancies for every unemployed Person in Russia. So I'm going on a bit here, but I think this is an important subject. So the bottom line is that Russia is only spending 3% of GDP at the moment, which it can manage. That's less than the US spent on its war in Korea. But if it's going to up the ante, it will have to spend a lot more and raise more troops, which will impact living standards and further spook the population and risk significant unrest. However, it can sustain the war at its current level which raises the vital question of whether Ukraine, and more importantly, the West, can do the same.
2: Good stuff, Patrick. You've obviously been doing your homework. Very impressive. Um, We move on to Bob Densley. He doesn't say where he's from, so I'm assuming the UK. His question is in three parts. Given that neither Russia or Ukraine are interested in the peace deal as things stand, is it not in the best interests of a quicker resolution for the West? to provide the required arms and required quantities ahead of when Ukraine needs them. If that is true, what are the main barriers to the arms and munitions being supplied to Ukraine ahead of time? And what are the key actions needed to remove those barriers to enable full armament sufficient to secure their borders against further Russian aggression? Well, Bob, we've been going on about this for quite a while. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. But the main, well, there are two main obstacles in my view. One, of course, is political. There's still a belief among NATO, the US in particular, that we shouldn't be giving the Ukrainians anything that they can use for an offensive into russia it sounds nuts doesn't it when exactly the opposite is happening all the time but there's also a supply issue too um, maybe not so much with things like planes the ukrainians say they want f-16s and that that could be a big game changer in the air power scenario and also air defense actually interestingly enough is one of the points they've been made i mean Bob, well, basically, what I'm trying to say is I totally agree with you. I think there needs to be political will. So if, if things are going to change, it will probably be because there doesn't look like there's going to be a resolution on the battlefield unless something like that happens. Uh, and we could be in a very, very long drawn out war. So we'll have to see with, with the coming Ukrainian counteroffensive, that could change everything. But, you know, even people like Phillips O'Brien, who are reasonably optimistic about Ukrainian prospects, is urging caution.
1: Yes, it is slightly depressing, isn't it? This uh, foot dragging on things like the sending of F-16s, you know, it's the backbone of NATO air forces, has been for the last 30 or more years. And there's plenty of them around, so they're available. But as you say, this, this fear of escalation of offending the Russians, I mean, what more do they have to do for us to actually get really serious? It seems to be still playing a large part in NATO, in Western allied decisions. And even if they do actually move now, it'll take a long time for this kit to get into theatre. The the feeling or the argument, the uh, excuse that's being made is that actually surface-to-air missiles, ground defence systems are are what's really needed. And uh, it'll just complicate the issue if they have to sort of train up pilots to fly F-16s, etc. But I think, you know, in terms of a statement of intent of a a display of resolution, a decision uh, that F-16s will be supplied would, would be very welcome at this point.
2: Okay, moving on to our old friend Ivarus from Lithuania. He asked, do you see some signs in Russian armed forces for a change that would make the Russian army a more formidable force in this war or after? Can necessity uh, be the mother of invention and bring about change is Ivarus's question. And No, I can't see much change. I have to say, Avaris, you could say that the electronic warfare jamming that they've been using to disrupt HIMARS is an example of them getting their act together. Absolutely. But in terms of the way they're actually fighting on the ground, uh, it's more of the same, isn't it? They are butting their heads against a brick wall. And even Prigozhin, of course, whose Wagner group has had limited success, as I've already pointed out, is not really changing the tactics of his men, or at least his commanders are not. They are still dying in enormous numbers and making, you know the only claim they can because of a lack of success, which is it's all down to the uh, Russian high command for not giving them the ammunition they need. But what does that tell you? The ammunition they need is more of the same. It's more destruction block by block in this kind of Syrian Grozny type attitude. And none of the all arms warfare we're hoping to see from the Ukrainians in the weeks ahead.
1: Okay, we've got one here from uh, Anthony Lemura in uh, Mackay, Queensland in Australia. And he his first Part of the question is about the Nord Stream pipeline, which is a very complicated issue, which we won't necessarily go into here. But this, the uh, second part of it is uh, about something that we were talking about quite excitedly last week. So that is the drone attack on the Kremlin, <laughs> which at the time seemed like a big event and that sort of fizzled out a bit, like the uh, the actual munition, whatever it was, that actually struck. Kremlin. Now, at the time, we said um, we thought it was probably Ukrainian-inspired, but uh, and we didn't actually raise the possibility of it being a black flag operation, which did get quite a lot of attention, didn't it, that explanation at the time. I'm going to ask you in a second for your thoughts about that, Saul, but just what a reference another contribution from Andrew McDonald in uh, Marlborough Wiltshire, who, talking about this attack, says anyone that knows about explosives. Will tell you that whatever the Kremlin drone was, it was not a serious explosive device. The big white flash, cloud of white smoke, and lack of blast are more akin to Hollywood than a real war. So he says it was a pyrotechnic, it was a firework essentially, and not a serious munition. So what do you reckon now, Saul, so What are your thoughts a week on?
2: Yeah, it's interesting, Andrew's contribution. Thank you for that. Um, the idea that the actual explosion gives an indication that it wasn't really that lethal. And that would tend to support the argument, frankly, that it was a false flag. Um, this is, you know, this is for show, as it were, to blame on Ukrainians, but actually has been Russian-inspired, and and probably within uh, the Putin regime itself. And that, interestingly enough, is the conclusion that's been come to by the Institute for the Study of War, who we're often mentioning because they're one of the most reliable, independent sources of information on the war, and they think it almost certainly was a false flag operation. So we're going to have to backtrack here a little bit, Patrick. We don't like to say we were wrong, and we won't know, of course, uh, possibly ever, but maybe until the end of the conflict, but uh, ever, I suspect. But it does seem that you know little indications are that it could easily have been an inside job
1: yeah and if so you know it, it is a pretty pathetic kind of ruse isn't it it does it doesn't none of the kind of you know, what what actually do they get out of that nothing except uh, just to to make us even more skeptical about anything that uh, comes out of the mouth of the kremlin just a quick one here from till who's talking about saving private ryan is kind of a a rather obscure question, but a sort of quite interesting one. He says that, you know, of course, in in the Normandy campaign, the U.S. forces used what's known in military speak as a countersign, which is a kind of, you know, a challenge by the sentry and a response by the troops. And they used the words flash, which is the challenge, and thunder to identify each other. So uh, the approaching, uh, sorry, the sentry calls out flash and the approaching sol- soldier says thunder. And the, the words they uh, chose were because thunder was difficult for Germans to pronounce. And he's asking whether there's a similar sort of countersign in use in this sort of close quarters uh, fighting that we've seen in, in Bakhmut, etc. My immediate thought is that, you know, as lots of Ukrainians speak Russian, I'm not sure how this is, this would actually be effective there. Have you got any thoughts on that sort
2: no it 's a good point isn 't it? In terms of their kind of pronunciation, it will be relatively similar, and as you say, Ukrainians speak Russian, so uh, they 're at a slight advantage i suspect but but let 's be honest here I mean both sides will have a way to use identification signs that only they know about or in theory only they know about as you know any kind of password situation. Patrick, as you know, in a military sense and you you change it as often as possible. So it's not just a question of how people pronounce, although interesting enough you had a similar thing in the Pacific where they used to use words that they knew the Japanese couldn't pronounce um, for that reason too and I suppose you could keep repeating those words maybe that's the point and it's it's easier to remember one than it is to remember hundreds but but yeah no question with that sort of close quarter fighting they are going to need to be able to identify themselves they're using those little colored flashes on the uniforms but uh, anyone can change those and, and impersonate someone else as the Germans of course were were so good at doing during the second world war when they were pretty happy to put on the uniform of their opponent, which technically is an offence, but for which you can be shot, actually. <laughs> but they were uh, th- they were happy to do that. And uh, I suppose most infamously during the Ardennes Offensive when they dressed up as American soldiers, um, these, these SS special forces uh, in their attempt to get behind enemy lines. Okay, we've got one here from John. Again, no location, so probably UK. Gents, thanks for the great pod. Generalising here, but given the strong inclination of Russians to gladly accept bribes, and if you combine this with Russian soldiers' low morale, lack of purpose, could it not be effective to bribe the Russian front line en masse into waving the white flag and surrendering? Patrick, what do you think?
1: Well, this is something that has occurred to people before, but not with money. I remember during the Cold War, there was a kind of semi-serious suggestion that given that the Russian troops had proclivity to drink, that it would be a good idea to airdrop mass supplies of vodka, which would have a completely sort of debilitating effect on them. I think that is actually not a bad idea.
2: OK, now, um, a question last week, which was that how could we donate, uh, you know, how could interested parties donate to the Ukrainian cause? Uh, I think the question was specifically about drones. Well, actually, a couple of our listeners have come back. Mary Lee O'Brien from Leyland, North Carolina, in particular, who says actually what you need to do is go to the official Ukrainian government's website and it's called United 24 and the web address is u24.gov.ua. It's on the initiative of, of President Zelensky and it gives you the opportunity to buy reconnaissance drones or contribute to humanitarian aid, medical aid, rebuilding Ukraine. So whatever you want. If you don't feel comfortable spending money on munitions, and that's understandable, then maybe the humanitarian aspect is something you'd like to contribute to. So go to that website and uh, and you can do that.
1: And uh, Mary Lee finishes by saying, uh, please keep up the good works. I feel it's important for America to not lose focus on supporting Ukraine. Well, you and I have both been in, in the US recently, Saul. I don't know what you thought, but I was actually, quite alarmed by the level of uh, anti-Ukrainian sort of stuff coming out from right-wing commentators like Tucker Carlson now um, no longer in his pulpit at Fox News. But, you know, there is a a strong strain of, you know, that very long-established American tradition of staying out of, of foreign wars. So there is, you know, that's, that old strain of American isolationism is alive and well, uh, as far as I could see in America. And that is something that is very alarming to me. Against that one, well, I must say that I found a lot of support, a lot of Ukrainian flags around. Admittedly, I was uh, staying with, with our old friend Askold Krushelnitsky and his wife, Irka. Uh, so we were, you know, in contact with, with a lot of uh, of Ukrainians. But yeah, I mean, it's it, it's by no means... Totally solid American support for Ukraine. And of course, the upcoming election uh, is going to play a, a huge part in how this develops going forward. I've got one here from Shane Duggan, which I think you should answer, Saul, because he's referencing you specifically. Um, he says, although originally Irish, I live in Frankfurt and work at the Goethe University in Frankfurt in the IT department. Uh, he, he noted that you're researching your new book, um, which largely focuses on Eisenhower. And uh, he says Eisenhower's still a big figure in Germany. And he, he's wondering what advice you think Ike would give to the Ukrainians as they shape up for the offensive.
2: Yeah, excellent question. Uh, I am working on a book that uh, Eisenhower features very prominently in, but it's not specifically about Eisenhower. In any case, um, I think the advice he would give would be along the a similar sort of strategy to the one that he adopted himself when he was when he was in charge of all uh, Allied armies uh, towards the final push into Germany. And that was for a broad front. So big debate at that time. Monty, of course, and Patton, to a certain extent, were trying to get the lion's share of resources so that they could punch a hole through the enemy line. Most infamously, I suppose, or famously, but failed, was the attempt by Monty, very out of character, frankly, but the Operation Market Garden attempt to bridge too far, Punch their way into northern Germany but Eisenhower was absolutely determined that the way to crack the nut so to speak was to the broad front which is you keep the pressure up on a lot of different locations and I suspect he'd be saying the same to the Ukrainians don't put all your eggs in one basket go for a single breakthrough I think you should keep the pressure on and then as I mentioned before with the kind of Alexander the Great scenario where you feel weakness then maybe you can reinforce success so to speak but don't uh, leave you know, a single thrust, because that, of course, can, can be counterattacked. Whether the Russians have the capability to do that or not is another matter. But the final point on that, um, which is slightly contradictory, is, of course, the great success of the Germans through the Ardennes. And that really was all, all eggs in one basket, advancing on a relatively narrow front. So there obviously are different ways you can succeed in war. But the question was about Eisenhower, and I suspect he would have said, go for the broad
1: front. Yeah, and of course, the Ardennes uh, counteroffensive failed. And even if it had succeeded, I don't think it would have actually brought German victory. Another point about this, actually, on the broad front is that I think we forget that after D-Day, there was a second invasion of Europe from the south, Operation Dragoon, which was launched on August the 15th, several weeks after D-Day, more than several weeks after D-Day. And that really did cause the Germans huge problems because they've got uh, attacks coming in from the northwest and from the south. So uh, how you actually then defend your line becomes much more problematical.
2: Okay, last couple of questions. The first is from Mark Jordan in Washington, D.C., uh, a city I recently visited, as you will know. Enjoying the podcast, your collective optimism and hope for Ukraine is a welcome respite from the daily cadence of worrisome news, uh, which we both experience, as you say, Patrick, when we're in the States. However, with so much commentary about how Ukraine and its people have been consistently underestimated before and during this conflict, should we not reflect more on Russian history as well as its national character and similarly conclude that it? Too, is underestimated. Its vast natural wealth and size, its history of enduring unspeakable suffering and privation for the sake of ultimate victory, and its military, albeit compromised, all suggest that Russia's reserves of people, material, doggedness and resources should temper our optimism. What does your cold-eyed analysis tell you about how our collective hope for Ukraine may be clouding our judgment? Well, it's a perfectly reasonable question to ask, Mark, but I do think that things are different this time. We, we've we talked before about how dogged Russia's been in defense of its own nation, when it genuinely believed. I know Putin's been banging on about this and saying that, you know, the defense of Ukraine is existential for Russia. But surely, 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 the uh, average man and woman in the street in Russia know that's not true. And more importantly, in my view, the soldiers know that's not true. And it's all about uh, motivation and morale on the battlefield, And I'm certainly convinced, and I think Patrick's uh, at least half convinced that Russian conscripts do not have the same determination uh, to fight. And there's a very good chance uh, in the weeks and months to come that the Russian effort will collapse because of low morale, poor equipment, and incompetent leadership.
1: Yeah, I think um, that analysis is is pretty sound, uh, Saul. I think it it is a very different scenario. I think it's probably more akin to Afghanistan. The kind of attitude of the Russian armed forces than it is to a World War II scenario, when as you say, they are actually defending the homeland uh, against attackers who are determined to, as the Russians are in Ukraine, actually wipe the nation off the face of the earth. So I think that all the motivation to fight is really on one side in this one. Okay, we've got a, a last one here from Hugh Murphy in Ireland, who says he's a lawyer with a keen interest in international relations. And he's always been a bit confused and bothered at something that occurred to him about the opening phase of of World War II. The United Kingdom entered the war as a result of the invasion of Poland. However, the invasion of Poland was instigated by two aggressors, Germany and the Soviet Union. So his question really is, why didn't Britain declare war on Russia as well as on Germany? So well, I mean, it's 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 a complicated uh, story and quite a, quite a fascinating one. Uh, the first thing to point out is that the uh, the Russian invasion actually came sixteen days after the German invasion, and this had already been agreed uh, that they were going to carve up Poland between them, Russia and Germany, in the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact of August the twenty third. And of course, once the Russians arrived, there was followed by a kind of mass uh, oppression of the. Uh, of the Poles, an attempt to crush the kind of spirit of Polish nationhood. Many political murders, of course, culminating in the Katyn Massacre, which, of course, explains the Polish attitude towards Russia in this current war. And none of this, of course, was mentioned in the uh, Victory Day celebrations the other day. But the answer specifically to the question is that when the, the UK signed the agreement with Poland in uh, 1939, the the treaty to defend Poland or go to Poland's aid in the in the event uh, of German aggression, it was limited strictly to that to German aggression. There was no mention of Soviet aggression. In fact, there was a secret protocol that, that really did make it uh, specific uh, to uh, a, G- a German attack. Uh, you've got to remember that during that summer, France and Britain were trying to come to a to an agreement with the Soviet Union. Uh, to defend themselves from the Germans, but it collapsed because there was sort of mutual suspicion on on all sides and a fear that uh, Stalin was actually playing with Britain and France uh, to lure them into a full military alliance that would then allow him to have a free hand to move into Poland and uh, and Finland. A fascinating question, I'm afraid, for a rather complicated answer.
2: Okay. Just before we finish, I should mention a couple of other people who've written in to talk about where you can fund military equipment. One of them is Andy Martin Smith, and he's talked about a, a website called thedrone.com com uh, forward slash the war zone. So have a look at that. If you're interested in uh, an initiative, which is to send British scorpion vehicles to Ukraine. Also, Evelyn Van Cleef mentioned the u24.gov.ua website. Thank you, Evelyn. Uh, And finally, um, an interesting suggestion by Ruben Marshall to watch a YouTube channel called Lindy Beige, that's L-I-N-D-Y-B-E-I-G-E, because it's got quite an interesting interview with an ex-British soldier who went to Ukraine to fight in the Foreign Legion. And while I'm on the subject of the Foreign Legion, actually, a question we didn't have time to deal with, but really asking, you know, what was the contribution of mercenaries on the Ukrainian side? Well, I'm not sure you call them mercenaries. They they are volunteers fighting, as I say, in the Foreign Legion. But the real uh, important distinction is there are relatively few of them. I and mean, we're talking about maybe a couple of thousand compared to the tens of thousands who are fighting on behalf of the Russians uh, in these PMCs, these private military companies. OK, that's all we have time for. Remember to keep sending your questions in to battlegroundukraine at gmail.com. And do join us next Wednesday for another big interview. Goodbye.